All right, so today we are continuing with our series called Eight Essential Elements of the Biblical Christian Gospel. This is the 36th lesson in the uh, series, if I'm counting correctly. And uh, we are on still on element five, which is Jesus Christ, the only mediator, or you might say the only bridge, the only solution. Um, elements zero through four, we tried to... Uh, Help us see what all of both the worldly culture and the, in today's contemporary church culture tries to minimize the depth of the gap between God and man. And it tries to minimize that by two, two directions. One, well, three or four, actually. That's why there's four elements. One is the attack is on the nature of God. And almost all Christians have a God in their heart and mind that is less than the biblical God. That's why we highly recommend reading a book called The Knowledge of the Holy by A.W. Tozier. And as you read scripture, ask God to reveal himself for who he is to you. Because our God is less holy than we need him to be in our hearts and minds. He's less omnipotent. If you still worry or are anxious about anything, it's because God's not big enough in your mind and heart. And so... Um, we have a, a very man-centered kind of Christianity in our day and age, and some of that comes from a diminished view of the nature of God, and that was element one. Element two, we looked at uh, the, the Bible's teaching on who man is, and we both we struggle in our culture with believing that man is created in the image of God. The reason we have an abortion issue, how could we have an abortion issue? How could we say it's okay to kill the defenseless? Uh, because we have no view that man is created in God's image. He's just a product of conception, just a biological phenomena. He's no more important than an endangered species in the insect world or something. So, which is important, but not as important as a human being. So, we looked at uh, that, and then we uh, we almost universally across the board have a, you know, the, the essence of modern psychology is a blame-shifting, excuse-making, rationalizing. You know, I got molested when I was eight, and I, my mother bit me when I was five, and the sun was in my eyes, and the ball took a bad hop. And we have a whole way of being able to rationalize our lack of obedience to God and our lack of repentance and our lack of conviction, and so forth, by uh, blame-shifting, excuse-making, rationalizing, and we just don't see sin for the depth that it is. And therefore, this whole problem is exacerbated or exaggerated by the lack of seeing the Ten Commandments for what they are. Today's contemporary Christianity is big on turning the grace of God into licentiousness, as the Scripture says, on a thing uh, in theology called antinomianism, which basically underestimates the importance of God's law. That couldn't be possible because at the time the Ten Commandments was stolen out of almost every venue of our culture uh, from the late 1950s, uh, picking up speed in 1963 and 4 till now, uh, th at that time the majority of people in America considered themselves to be Christian. Now that's no longer the case. Christians are now... Less than 50 people who call themselves Christian, let alone people who really are Christian, 
are less than 50% of the American population. But it, in 1964, when the cases started throwing the Supreme Court out of schools, and, or the Supreme Court started throwing the Ten Commandments out of schools and so forth, 88% of Americans identified themselves as Christians back then. But not Christians enough to be upset, to understand the importance of the Ten Commandments. So we looked at these things. We looked at the historical narrative of Israel and how Jesus is the new Israel and the church is the new Israel of God. And you can't get past what what many call radically individualistic views of conversion and justification. God is not just trying to justify you in terms of your individual righteousness before God, but he's trying to make you one with his cosmic purposes, one with his eternal decree, one with his people. He calls you into a people and into a community and into a way of life. Um, that's so important. So um, the uh, so we looked at all that. So then when we see the bigness of the gap, we we begin to understand that Jesus Christ is the only solution. So We've actually, for 15 weeks, been looking at a a subject called Christology, which is just a study of Jesus Christ. In Hebrews chapter 3 and Hebrews chapter 12, it says to consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession in Hebrews 3. Hebrews 12, consider him the author and perfecter of your faith. So we're, we're to actually, the Bible tells us to actually meditate on, think about, study who Jesus is. So that's what we've been doing for 15 weeks, and we divided that into two sections so far, what I would call elemental Christology, and then for the last, oh, I, eight weeks or so, we've been on the ministry of Jesus. Today, we're going to continue with the ministry of Jesus, and um, we're going to look at another aspect of his ministry, and today, we're going to look at the fact that he was the fulfillment and is the fulfillment of all the prophets that he was the ultimate quintessential prophetic witness and that he was the final step in God's covenant lawsuit against the nation of Israel. And therefore, Jesus is the fulfillment of all prophecy. And he fulfilled all prophecy in his ministry and continues to do so because he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And what we studied for the last three or four weeks is that his ministry continues unchanged by the Holy Spirit working through the church. The agents of God are the Word of God, the Spirit of God, and the Church of God. That three-legged stool is how Jesus Christ comes to the world and is still coming to the world. That is how his word is made flesh. That is how the kingdom comes. They are the delivery systems of his grace of his kingdom, of his purposes, of his reign. So um, today we're going to look at the ministry of Jesus in terms of fulfilling all the prophets. They were all prototypes of which he is the antitype. Uh, I hope you know that those terms from literature. They, they were all foreshadowings of the substance and reality that he is. Everything they say, said was a foreshadowing pointing to him. And let's look at some scriptures. I'm going to try to read a bunch of scriptures here just to get us oriented and comment as little as I can. I meant to uh, actually even have somebody 
read these into the record, but let's uh, go with this. Acts 10.43, of him, that is Jesus, all the prophets bear witness. Notice the word all. That through his name, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. Uh, The ESV and the New King James, instead of saying of him, say to him, all the prophets bear witness. I gave you some other scriptures uh, there in Romans and Ephesians that you might want to consider that say uh, similar things, that in him is the fulfillment of all the law and the prophets. And by the way, notice in Romans that um, one of those scriptures is at the beginning of what Paul has to say. He starts with stating that he's the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. He ends with it in Romans 16. And in the, right in the middle, in the heart of his first argument, he makes four arguments, Romans 1 through 4, 5 through 8, 9 through 11, are three presentations of the gospel, focusing on different aspects of the whole gospel. And uh, then Romans 12 through 16 is how we should live as a result of those three presentations of the gospel. And right in the middle of his, the heart of his first argument, he talks about how Jesus is the fulfillment of all the law and the prophets. So 1 Peter 1, 10 through 12. By the way, uh, key to understanding First and Second Peter is that if you remember in the Gospel of John, in, uh, G- John taught us uh, at one point on Jesus' threefold restoration of Peter. Peter had a threefold denial of Jesus. Jesus restored Peter three times uh, to match the three denial statements. Uh, when, when God revealed to Peter that the kingdom was for the Gentiles and he was still having trouble understanding that main theme of the Old Testament, Jesus uh, revealed that to him three times in Acts 10. Uh, so with, in, in uh, Peter, part of that uh, restoration of Peter is that Jesus told Peter that a time would come when he, someone else would clothe him. He said, you know, up till now you've clothed yourself and gone wherever you went. At, and, uh, at, but there will come a time when someone else would clothe you and take you to where you do not wish to go. And that was, uh, as John makes clear in his gospel, which Peter had read by this time he wrote First and Second Peter, he makes clear uh, that that has to do with Jesus telling Peter that, uh, about how he would die. And so Peter is in Nero's prison, knowing that uh, this great Antichrist figure, Nero, is going to kill him. And knowing that his time is due, and he writes First and Second Peter in the context of my entire ministry, from the time Jesus called me in Luke five till now, I want to. I've got one shot to leave behind the most important things I can. And he asked Mark to write his gospel, and he wrote First and Second Peter. So First and Second Peter are very important from that to understand that perspective on them. So and that this is Peter's final. Like, I want this to, rever- to, to reverberate throughout the centuries. I want to leave this legacy in the church. First Peter 1, 10 through 12, As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to, come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was in indicating as he predicted the sufferings in, of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you 
in these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angles, angels, angels, angels long to look. Uh, so in the, keep your mind on the, th- on the underlying parts there. He predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. In Luke chapter 24, Jesus appears to two different groups of, of disciples on the resurrection day. On this, the, both appearances are on the, uh, are the I'm sorry, the, the first one is on, the, on his resurrection. The what, second one, I'm, I, I got to clarify that. I'm not actually sure if it, I think it was the resurrection day, and then he, but then he gives them some final instructions. But um, in any case, in Luke 24, Jesus, in two different appearances to the disciples, basically teaches them this. Then beginning with Moses, which means uh, Moses is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and Job uh, in one psalm. Beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, because Moses is a prophet, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all, all, all the scriptures. I should have all underlined. Now he said to them, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Remember how Paul talks about in, in uh, is it 2 Corinthians 3? Yeah, 2 Corinthians 3, how uh, veil lies over the heart and mind of the Israelites when they read the, the law so that they don't see the glory of Christ until that veil is removed in Christ. Christ op- re- was removed that veil to the disciples in these encounters. He basically started the process of opening the, the, the disciples' encounters that you know Paul in many ways completed that process, but he started a process where they were able to rethink the Old Testament scriptures for what had always been there all along, that is, that they are a revelation of Jesus Christ from start to finish. He opened their mind to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day. Notice that suffering theme again. And the repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. John 5, 39, Jesus is speaking at a time when the only scriptures that existed are what we call the Old Testament today, I call the Hebrew scriptures, the 39 books of the Old Testament. He says, you search those 39 books because you think that in them you have eternal life. And he's not disagreeing that that's where to find eternal life. He says, it is these that testify about me. The ESV says, bear witness about me. The New King James says, testify. So it's the, the scriptures, that is all the scriptures bear witness of him is what he's saying, okay? And then he says, uh, continues by saying, and you are unwilling to come to me. Acts 8.35, it says, then Philip opened his mouth and beginning from this scripture, what scripture was it? He was reading Isaiah 53. The, this is the encounter with the Ethiopian court official uh, in Gaza as the, uh, the Lord had beamed him up from Samaria and planted him in Gaza, which is... Uh, about a three days walk, and he instant, instantly was converted or con, whatever translated to that new place. And he comes up to the chariot and he says, "Do you understand what you're reading?" And the guy says, "Well, how could I unless someone explains or opens them up the scriptures up to me?" And beginning from those scriptures, that is Isaiah 53. Uh, he preached Jesus to him. 
2 Peter 1.19, so we have the prophetic word made more sure. Remember what we said about Peter. The prophetic word is made more sure, to which you will do well to pay attention. How many Christians today do not pay attention to the prophetic word called the Old Testament? He says you'll do well if you pay attention to that. Now, you have to learn to read the reverse negative. You want to know why we have so many problems? Because you won't do well if you don't pay attention to the Old Testament scriptures. Because you'll be missing knowing Jesus. And you'll know him slightly instead of knowing him fully and deeply. And you won't enter into the eternal life which God is freely giving to you. You will do well to pay attention to those scriptures, and you won't do well if you don't pay attention. And if you pay attention to them as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. Who is the morning star? Christ. There's a reason why he rose at dawn on the first day of the week, because it's Prophetically, he was saying, I'm the beginning of the new heavens and the new creation and the new earth. That's why the Lord's Day is the first day of the week. Those uh, minor groups that try to say the Lord's Day is still the, the last day of the week and still the Sabbath and so forth are kind of missing the point of the whole Bible. It's not like they're missing some minor point. There's a reason why the apostles practiced the Christians got together on the first day of the week at sunrise to worship the Lord. And they later, as the church grew, they compromised to, because there, there is an element of the New Testament of like not putting undue yokes and burdens where they changed to meeting early in the morning instead of at sunrise because it's a little easier for most people. But, you know, if you really want to get the anointing, you should come to the 6 a.m. service we have here. Uh, you'll be, might be the only person, but... <laughs> But the Lord will be moving in your heart. Uh, just open the Bible and seek him. Uh, if you need a key, let me know. Uh, if you're going to come at 6 a.m., we'll, we'll, we'll arrange to get you a key. All right, Second Peter, flip over. This is now, beloved, the second letter I'm writing to you, which I am stirring up your sincere minds by way of reminder. Why? Because the Bible tells us about reminding all the way, how to remind. Memorial stones. When they went through the Jordan, they were to get 12 stones and set them up as a memorial. When Jacob and Laban made covenant, they set up stones as a memorial that all covenants in the Bible, all uh, redemptive acts of God were memorialized. The reason they did the Passover every year is to remember the redemptive deeds of God and delivering them from Israel. That's why Jesus gave this to us to do this in remembrance of him because remembering is more than intellectually remembering. It's uh, kind of re-enacting, uh, not reenacting. That's it doesn't go that far. Uh, it's kind of reinvigorating, of uh, re- renewing the covenant of... of uh, there's a grace and an actual impartation there. That's why, in, in you know, I always say in the marriage covenant, it's important that you have a good physical relationship in your marriage. If you don't, that's, that's a problem. That's why, like, you, you basically are shooting yourself. When you commit sexual immorality outside of immorality, there's, that's one of the most damaging things you can do to yourself. It's self-destruction of all kinds of sexual immorality. 
because, it, because the Bible is all about remembrance in the context of God's redemptive covenants. So, uh, so he's stirring up your minds by way of reminder that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets. Is he, is he saying you should just read the epistles? I don't think so, right? Is he saying you should just read the Gospels? He's telling us that we need to remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by the apostles. That right there, he's basically saying you should read the Old Testament and the New Testament. Hebrews 1, 1 through 2. And God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets, in many portions and in many ways... In these last days, he's spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. Now, I gave you a couple other scriptures you can consider, and no, there's no extra charge for those. Okay, so let's uh, make three points about Jesus being in his bringing, fulfilling all the prophets and bringing God's final covenant lawsuit to to Israel. So, uh, let the first thing we want to say is taken from the two, two little quotes from above. Of him, that is Jesus, all the prophets bear witness. And he spoke through the, pro, the, and the prophets in many portions and in many ways. I want you to key on that phrase, many portions and many ways. There's, so you sometimes hear today, you will often hear uh, many evangelical commentators say that Jesus fulfilled approximately 330 prophecies concerning himself. Uh, you will hear a certain number for just the, the number that he fulfilled in Holy Week, and they'll throw out some number like 60-some. When they say this, they're mi- totally misinformed. Uh, there's no other way to say it. They, it's because they're only looking at the most didactic, direct statements of, that Jesus fulfilled, not at all the many portions and in the, in the many ways that it, was, that it prophesied of Christ. In other words, we remember we taught on didactic scriptures, and almost all teaching today uh, is out of the didactic scriptures and ignores 90% of the scriptures because it doesn't look at types and word pictures and case laws and so forth and all the other ways God speaks besides the didactic portions. So the truth is the Old Testament prophesies, um, you really, if you really listen to John's Finding Christ in the Old Testament series and all the stuff I've taught on it last Christmas, I taught on this several times, uh, partially to help Josiah and Amber and several people who are coming out of that um, Baptisty uh, dispensational, the the you know the only the didactic scriptures of the New Testament are important kind of thing to to help us understand. Like a lot of a uh, lot of people, uh, there were there were others I could list there come to me and they say, well, I don't get that much out of the Old Testament, and I get bogged down in Leviticus and so forth, and it's. What I say is you need the veil removed in Christ that that Paul talks about. You need to know how to see Jesus on every page of the Old Testament. So uh, that's what we're going to look at in terms of the part of the ministry of Jesus, 
was he made clear in many ways that he was Daniel 7, the son of man. He calls himself the son of man, telling them, Daniel 7, that what you're expecting. You, every Israelite in his day was expecting the Messiah. And they knew that one of the titles of the Messiah came from Daniel 7, and it was the title was the Son of Man. And that's why he calls himself 38 times in the Gospel of Luke, he calls himself Ben-Adam, the Son of Man, the second Adam. Because he's saying, man, 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 everything in the Old Testament that foreshadows the coming of the king, that foreshadows Emmanuel, God with us, that foreshadows the Messiah, Messiah coming, all of it is about me. He says, says that his entire ministry in many portions and in many ways. I'm just going to be able to give you one of the most direct ones first. I'm going to give you, show you three ways. Um, oh, shoot. This thing reformatted on me without my knowing it. Um, I hate Microsoft Word. Um, more than Jason hates the, the Pittsburgh Steelers uh, and the Bengals self-destruct. So Isaiah 9 uh, is one of the ones we read. I just chose one, but it, 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 at Advent... We read many, many, many scriptures, right, about uh, the, the coming of the Christ, right? And one of them we always read is, Ad, is Isaiah 9. And uh, um, if you want to see more of those, read your, read your Gospels, especially the three synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Read them from the perspective of noticing the quotes from the Old Testament. Almost every translation, read the, the notes at the beginning of your Bible so you know how to read it. It'll tell you that um, all quotes from the Old Testament in the New Testament are in italics or they're in uh, small caps. I like the New American Standard because they're in small caps, so they stand out a lot. and It's easy. It's easier not to miss them. But the ESV does it in uh, italics. There's, a, there's another type of print that's similar to italics, they call it, and I forget what it's called. Oblique, yeah, they do. Uh, they do it in oblique in the ESV, and the uh, New King James Version does it in italics. And notice those when you go through the gospel. And whenever you see one of those, use your Bible Gateway or whatever, find that scripture and read the context. Because whenever the Bible's quoting, when Jesus cries out in Psalm twenty-two, "My God, My God, why hast thou forsaken me?" If in a Hebrew mindset, he's quoting the entire Psalm, Psalm twenty-two. He's saying, if you want to know what's going on here, read Psalm 22, the whole thing. That's what, so when, you, when Paul quotes from the Old Testament, when Jesus does, all through the, the gospel writers give us many examples that we're to build on of how to see Jesus in the Old Testament. And so when they quote from the Old Testament, go back to the quote and read it in context. Read the whole chapter that the quote is found in. It's because, you know, again, Acts 8, as we already talked about, gives us one portion from Isaiah 53, but, but the whole chapter is about Jesus being the suffering servant. So that'll help us. Here's just one example of the most didactic or most clear, straightforward. Isaiah 9, 1 through 2, uh, Peter, uh, Matthew quotes these in his gospel. But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish in earlier times. 
He treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt, but later on he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. Now, Matthew quotes that at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, public ministry, to say he, he first went to those lands in, and proclaimed who he was in the synagogues, in Capernaum and uh, Nazareth. And we just covered that a few weeks ago. That's, that was uh, what he did. Uh, you know, the rest of, all of Isaiah 9 is a prophecy of Jesus, but uh, jumping down to verse uh, um, 6, uh, for a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of his peace. We just used these verses when we were talking about continuationism. The Lord doesn't take the Holy Spirit away. He pours it out all the more because he's going to fill the whole earth through the church with his glory. There will be no end to the increase of his government and his peace. His government will increase and increase and increase. And he's a benevolent dictator who sets the nations free from their sin, from their self-destruction, from the, the, the satanic hierarchy and kingdom's plans to kill, rob, and destroy. He came to set the captives free, and he's still doing that. He preaches the gospel to the poor. He proclaims today is the day of salvation, the favorable year of the Lord, and he and uh, so forth. He's continuing to do these things. There will be no end to the increase of his government or his peace, and on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it. So now I could have listed, you know, your average evangelical commentary will say that there's 330-some of those types of prophecies of Jesus in the Old Testament, those really direct, clear, didactic presentations of him. And so that you know how to do it, there's actually a teaching in some circles today that you can only take what the New Testament specifically states as a... As a um, a, a prophecy of Jesus from the Old Testament and call it a type or a prophecy or whatever. Nonsense. It's uh, a thing that is called apostolic induction. You don't need to understand that at this point. But what you do need to understand is the way in which the apostles use the Old Testament is actually meant to for you to build on. It's saying this is the way to do it. We're going to give you in the New Testament a few examples of this, maybe a couple hundred or 300 or so examples, you go find the other 3,000 ways that it does it. Because that's the joy of, of Scripture. The whole joy of reading Scripture is to discover Christ. Leviticus won't be boring to you anymore when you find Jesus there. So... Um, now, second way that all the prophets bear witness in many portions and in many ways, another way is in what is using people as types. The Greek word tupas uh, uses people as types. That's what John's whole series, most, most of his 16 weeks were about individuals in the Old Testament who were types or foreshadowings of Jesus. And, every, and he, what he taught us was that 
And you should definitely do that by the providence of God. God somehow made it so that we got our act together to actually start recording the podcast and putting them on a website right at that time. And that that is so amazing because the though that's so if you go back under Sunday services, regular Sunday service to the very beginning, you'll see that series. And I would encourage you to listen to the whole series. And he mostly tells us how this guy and the other guy and the other guy are types or foreshadowings of Christ. But again, that's representative of how to go do it. Go and find 35 more of them for yourself. After you, you know, see John's using the same method the apostles used to identify Christ in the Old Testament, once your eyes are opened how to do that, you'll get more out of the Old Testament every time you read it. Because you'll find Jesus as as type in so many people's lives. Now, uh, I listed some examples there. I think I listed Abel. Boy, it really messes me up that John 1 jumped over back to its format there. I hate that. Um, could it, I could have squeezed another verse in there if I had known that. Um, I only put whatever I can fit on one page, front and back. So... Um, where did we put um, Abel, Joseph, Moses, Joshua? We could go on and on. I just uh, want to give us some examples, though, today. Uh, Abel, Hebrews 12, 24, 22 through 24 says this, but you've come to Mount Zion. Mount Zion, we listen to my message called Mountains in Matthew. Mount Zion is where Jerusalem was built on. It's what Jesus is addressing in his Mount Olivet discourse, in his covenant lawsuit against Israel saying the kingdom will be taken away from you and given to a nation producing the fruit. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets. And then he prophesies that not the armies will surround Jerusalem and not one stone will be left upon another. None of that has to do with the end times. It has to do with the last days of Israel as the covenant people of God and the new days of the new heavens and the new earth and the new creation, which we're living in. And so... That's what he's saying. You've come to that Mount Zion. The church is the new Mount Zion. And um, when you see a church called Mount Zion, this or that, pretty good name. But you've come to Mount Zion in the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels, to the general assembly and the church of the firstborn. Who's the firstborn? Jesus. Not because he's the firstborn alone but because the firstborn is the heir of all creation he's he's the eternally begotten son of the father therefore the heir of all creation uh if somebody could check somebody just went behind the church i hope hopefully it's somebody doing something responsible oh what's that okay so um where were we so um in the church to the general assembly of the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and God, the judge of all and the spirits of righteous men made perfect and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and the sprinkled blood, which speaks better than the blood of Abel. I, I love those passages because Jesus blood speaks better than the blood of Abel in three or four ways. Abel shed his blood involuntarily. Jesus shed his blood voluntarily. He said, no one takes my life from me. I freely lay it down. He, when they came to arrest him in, in the garden, he said, don't you think I could appeal to my father for legions of angels? And I could stop all this if I wanted. Okay, so Abel was rejected by his brother. Jesus was rejected by his brothers, by the people 
who were supposed to uh, be his people. Uh, Abel's blood was shed on the ground. Jesus' blood is not only shed on the ground, but in a mystery, it's shed before the mercy seat of God. Abel's blood cried out for vengeance. And Jesus' blood cries out that all vengeance has been put on the Son, and it cries out for forgiveness and reconciliation, and it's still crying out. So Abel is one of the first great, uh, of course, Adam is the first great type of Christ in the Bible. Abel, probably the second great type of Christ. And he, Abel is the first of the prophets. John 1, uh, Jesus came to his own people just like Joseph did. Remember Joseph? His, he was the beloved son of his father, like Christ. He uh, had a coat of many colors, uh, you know, speaking of Jesus being clothed in, in all the fullness of God and, and, and all the righteousness of God. He was sent by his fathers to his brothers with a message. And his brothers, out of envy, uh, delivered him up and killed him, metaphorically, because they, you know, Reuben spared his life. And uh, they gave the dad a bloody sheepskin and so forth and or put blood on his coat and stuff from a sheep or, sheep or a goat and so forth. And so he was rejected by his own people. But Jesus, the Bible says to all who come to him, he gives the exousia, the authority to etern, receive eternal life. How did Israel get saved? How did the purpose of God get saved? They had to come to Joseph in Egypt. Right, he came to his own people, and those who were his own did not receive him. Both that's those that, those two statements are true of Joseph and of Jesus. But as many as received him, to them he gave the authority, exousia, the power and the authority to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Third way, we're talking about many parishes, many ways. The third way is word pictures. The Passover lamb of Exodus 12. You could write Exodus 12 there if you want to look at it. Manna is from Exodus and so forth. Uh, the Bible makes it clear. John 6, Jesus tells us that he was the bread of life. He was the manna in the wilderness. Right? The rock. The New Testament tells us they were drinking from a rock in, at the waters of Meribah and so forth when Moses struck the rock. And the rock was Christ. And Christ is still the rock we must drink from to have life. I, uh, the one I decided to leave some scripture with is the fiery bronze servants, because I love this one. Then they set out from Mount Hor, and it talks about how they went through this and that. And the people became impatient. They didn't like the leadership God had given them. <laughs> Because of the journey, they, they didn't. They wanted. They wanted instantaneous. Like I, I want it. I want it now. I don't want a journey where I'm going to know the Lord progressively, and where I'm going to encounter Him in the trials that You bring me, and that You're going to make a tale, table for me in the midst of my enemies. I want it all now, and I want it free. I want it like magic. I want entitlement. I don't want character development and journeys and. And uh, that there's no destination except more of Jesus. That we still struggle with the same stuff, don't we? The people spoke against God and Moses. One of the reasons, by the way, 
If you'll notice, I talk a lot about teachings in the church and trends in the church and so forth. I never talk about specific ministries or ministers because Paul says to their own master, they fall or rise. David would not stretch his hand against God's anointed in Saul because he had been the anointed of the Lord, even though God had rejected him and his whole life was falling apart and he was on a very negative crashing trend. That's really important uh, because they weren't upset with Moses. They're grumbling against Moses, but don't reject the leadership, God. To the degree you can say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's the degree. And, and don't ever pick on actual ministers of God. Look at ideas and trends that are in the church. Don't look at personalities. That's so important. They grumble against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there's no food and no water, and we want our food stamps. And, and uh, we loathe the miserable food, this miserable food. Ain't you got no better food than that? Uh, <laughs> so the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned because we have spoken against the Lord and you. Uh, intercede with the Lord that he may remove the serpents from us. And Moses interceded for the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent, in, uh, which, of course, he fired. It was bronze. You fire bronze. And set it on a standard, and it should come about that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, he will live. Is that not a foreshadowing of Christ? I don't know what is. And Moses made a broad serpent and set it on a standard, and it came about that if a serpent bit any man, which every person in this room has been bitten by the serpent, when he looked to the bronze serpent, he lived. You want answers? Look to the bronze serpent. Look to Christ. So this is the ministry of Jesus. The next thing is the suffering servant. I was really out of room on the page. Had I known that it reformatted me bigger, I might have been able to squeeze a scripture or two in there. All of Isaiah is about Jesus as the suffering servant. In a major theme, you can find uh, approximately 50-some uh, explanations in the New Testament of Jesus as the, that he had to suffer in order to come into his trial. We read some of them when I read all those scriptures earlier. Because uh, the, the reason Israel rejected Jesus is they had this kind of um, shallows, very similar to our prosperity, God will only bless me, bless me, bless me, uh, view of God, and, and that, oh, well, I'll be forgiven, so I'll just continue to sin and so forth. And they couldn't believe that God would they couldn't believe that Jesus was someone from God because if he was from God, how could he have suffered so much? That's why most Jews that rejected Jesus in the first century basically went back to that. How could this man be of God if he suffered so much? So over and over and over and over, the New Testament writers show you that how the Old Testament says over and over and over again that the Christ must suffer. Because Israel, that's why Israel rejected every prophet in their day. If you look at the difference between re, people who really are walking with God and people who are religious, the people who are really walking with God hear the, the people God puts in their life now. The people who are religious reject the people who challenge them now. But they're like, we're okay with Moses. And, and they always do it as Jesus made clear, John the Baptist came. Uh, eating and drinking and uh, 
or John the Baptist came not eating and drinking, you say he has a demon, and I came eating and drinking. They always do it about style. They always say it's about style. Well, I didn't like their teaching because I just had someone recently tell me I didn't like this. I don't like this particular movement's teaching because they use a lot of stories to illustrate their points. Well, the Bible uses a lot of stories to illustrate its points too. So uh, it's a matter of whether you tie it in the scripture and what's the points they're making. (laughs) It's not about the style. People always tell me, well, I want to go to a church where the pastor knows how to do hooping. Hooping is the kind of singing as you preach that uh, you find in African-American churches. Or I want to go to a church where, you know, the Bible guy pounds the pulpit or, you know, like it's not about style. It's about content. That's what, and everyone who rejects the purposes of God for their life will say it's about the style. I, this is just not my style. It's just the way it is. So, uh, the suffering servant, I wish I had more time to develop this. I'm going to try to get to the end today. So, so the covenant lawsuit, oh, maybe I'm just going to have to do a whole week on this covenant lawsuit. Uh, let's do that. Uh, we will pick it up. We'll have uh, part uh, elemental PQ. Part Q will be on God's covenant lawsuit against Israel. Uh, that will be uh, that can easily be a whole message. If you want to prepare yourself for that, if you have not read our intermediate book called An Eschatology of Victory, then you probably don't understand a lot of our thinking. I'd really encourage you to read that book. That's kind of a one of the most important ones on our list, and follow that by a book called Paradise Restored. Uh, just downloaded a new book uh, this week that uh, by a guy named McDun, is there, what's, uh, McDermott, and uh, I was like, wow, I can't believe somebody's actually saying this. He shows how Luke uh, is all about this covenant lawsuit against Israel, and I'm like, da-da, finally. And uh, so... Uh, We'll, we will look at that next week. We'll look uh, one, one more week at the ministry of Jesus in terms of the prophets, and we'll see how Jesus brings all of the prophets, starting with Moses' promises that if you reject me, uh, all these judgments will come upon Israel. And Jesus is saying everything the prophets have said is, is coming to pass on this generation. I'm done with you as a people, and I'm going to create a new people that will produce the fruit of the kingdom. Amen.